0: Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the Medstar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent, and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We wanna hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom and the aisle. Today on Lit Health, we are so very fortunate to be joined by Marty Hatley, who is a
1: patient safety advocate with a strong interest in the roles patients and family members play as co-creators of the Patient Safety Solutions. He currently serves as president and CEO for Project Patient Care, a Chicagoland safety and quality improvement coalition dedicated to using the voice of the patient to improve care. In 2021, he co-founded Patients for Patient Safety U.S., a U.S. branch of the World Health Organization's. Patients for Patient Safety Network. PFPS-US advocates implementation of the WHO Global Patient Safety Action Plan in the US. He is also principal of the Healthcare Patient Partnership Institute, which works with hospitals and health systems to engage patients as advisors in patient safety improvement work. And this doesn't even cover what Marty Hatley has done to improve the safety and quality of care in the United States. So I'm going to let him give a little bit of background. Marty, thanks so much for joining us on Lit Health today. I know I didn't do your entire career justice in that short bio, so can you can you talk a little bit more about your background and why you became so passionate about improving healthcare in the U.S.?
2: Uh, sure. Good morning. Uh, hello, Tracy, and it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to chat about things like this. I think a lot of my interest in patient safety and my passion ab- about making the world a better place in the healthcare system comes from my background as a lawyer and was shaped by my earlier legal career. I was a um litigator and defended doctors in medical liability cases for a part of my career and then I became a lobbyist for the American Medical Association and ran big coalitions in Washington there looking at the legal system and how it impacted the medical profession. So I'm a little ashamed to say that part of that work was making it harder for patients and families to sue. Uh, I've seen the light on that issue. I've completely gone over to the light side there. But another part of it was just looking at the litigation system and how it it just doesn't work well for healthcare safety issues. It's so adversarial. It's not focused on on learning, it's focused on winning. And so I spent a lot of time looking at alternatives to the typical, you know, adversarial litigation process. So things like no fault and health courts and enterprise liability where there's better pathways for just looking at bad outcomes and covering those in an economically efficient way. And that led, that was my pathway to patient safety. For a, a long period of time, I was skeptical of the numbers, the amount of harm that was starting to be reported by Lucian Leap and others in the literature. And once I saw that, I I was part of a movement, honestly, to really uh, focus on patient safety that started at the American Medical Association. And they launched the National Patient Safety Foundation. I helped them do that and became its first executive director. So that was my pathway to safety. I will say that a big aha moment I had in that process was just the role of patients and families as contributors to solutions. And that happened when uh, two years into the Establishment of the National Patient Safety Foundation in the summer of 1999, we were picketed by victims' rights groups from around the country, who gave us warning and uh, said we're, we're coming because you've left us out. I mean, this is very important to us, and you've left us out of your governing bodies and your committees and all of your work. And our rationalization there was that we were this was not the the job of patients and families to fix; it was the job of the profession. And um, I think you know, buried within that thinking was a lot of fear that the people who were going to be coming to camp out on our lawn were going to be really angry and perhaps violent. The last time the AMA had been picketed, it had been AIDS activists who'd thrown bags of pig blood at the building. So HR's knee-jerk response was, let's secure the perimeter, hire mounted police to protect the, the premises. But we had a wise woman on my board. Her name was Donnie Haas. She was a risk manager from a hospital in Florida, uh, Martin Memorial. And she was a mother of five. I think that was the key to her wisdom. Uh, and she said, maybe we should invite these people in and, and listen to what they have to say. So we did. And my aha moment was, was well, first of all, like, they couldn't have been nicer. Um, and they did, you know, ask to be included. But they also shared experiences that we were not hearing from um, the big wings around my board table: Don Berwick, Lucian Leap, others um, who have great expertise and were great leaders. But it's patients and families that are the managers of their care. They see the things fall between the cracks across the continuum. They see the rescues. They see the failures to rescue. And you know, I walked away from that meeting going, "Oh my gosh, we have a huge hole in our toolkit that comes from the lived experience of patients and families." And that's really driven my my passion. Going forward was really bringing that incredibly important voice and lived experience into our solution development. So that's the source of my passion. it's a it's kind of a long and winding road.
1: yeah yeah no thanks for that. I mean I realized you were a, a recovering trial attorney, but I I guess I hadn't realized the direct connection and the exposure you had to patient stories early on that that really kind of shaped your your passion.
2: absolutely it did.
1: Okay. So, you know, we've talked to a little bit about work that you're doing now with Patients for Patient Safety and World Health Organization around the need to really reboot the focus on patient safety in the U.S. healthcare system. Why do we have to refocus and reboot?
2: Well, the simple answer for why we have to refocus and reboot is that we haven't accomplished the mission. The healthcare system is not any safer now, really, than it was 20 years ago when, you know, the modern patient safety movement really kind of got traction in a big way with the publication of Two is Human in November of 1999. And I mean, there was a a huge flurry of activity then. You're probably too young to remember it, Tracy. But, um, you know, there was a Rose Garden ceremony that President Clinton did to uh, declare it an urgent national priority. There was huge press coverage. There was a poll that said 50 percent of Americans were aware of the story of this report coming out of the National Academy of Sciences, which is really kind of surprising when you think about how hard it is to get the awareness of the public but when you think about it from a human point of view i mean we all have our stories you know every dinner party you have with your family or your friends someone's got a story about healthcare that went wrong or almost went wrong so we that report tapped a nerve i mean it just people could relate to it i remember being in a cab and a cab driver asking me have you heard about this report about how much uh <laughs> death there is in hospitals I think it was also kind of shocking and counterintuitive that the leaders in the profession were also, you know, just acknowledging it and declaring it, you know, and owning it as a as an issue. So that kicked us off. But we've seen just drift since then. And we've seen, you know, drift and, and then momentum build and then momentum fall again. I, I mean, I have to also give credit to the Affordable Care Act, uh, President Obama's leadership. I mean, there was the Affordable Care Act brought us um, the hack reduction list, and that program hacks our um, healthcare acquired conditions. But it's ten things that you know really shouldn't happen that CMS started measuring and started tying payment to. It brought us uh, public reporting and transparency. There was a lot of investment in innovation, such as the um, Cantor program, which is a program that really celebrates open and honest communication and uh, with patients and uh, families after harm events, instead of, you know, circling the wagons and defending the citadel. So there was a lot of movement. I mean, we've learned a lot, but we haven't held on to it. It hasn't been durable because the leadership changes. The leadership changes at the governmental level and the leadership changes at organizations. So you can make progress and then you can see it just drift away. The work I'm doing now with Patients for Patient Safety, which is the WHO's network of patient led patient safety advocates, really happened because we've lost pretty much all the progress that we've made. Um, When you add COVID into the fact that there was just the kind of drift I just talked about, we've lost almost all the gains we've made. There's just a couple of exceptions. We see anesthesia continually getting safer. And we see, you know, sort of isolated wins like the elimination of early elective deliveries because the right coalition of partners came together and just made it happen. But for the most part, infections, falls, medication errors, those things, pressure ulcers, bed sores, those things are the data is just as bad as it ever was. So we have to reboot and we have to reboot and declare this a new priority. And when we came together as Patients for Patient Safety, which was founded by 10 sort of longstanding patient activists here in the United States. The first thing we did was write to Secretary Becerra and say, why isn't this a priority for the Department of Health and Human Services? We can't even find it in your strategic plan. And we were deliberately provocative. We wrote an article uh, called Who Killed Patient Safety to just lay the problem at the feet of leadership wherever they were (laughs) in organizations, in government because we we realized that the healthcare system wasn't going to fix itself that they needed some outside pressure and some outside activist pushing on them and we we're we're partners but we're pushy partners so that's kind of where we are now and you know the good news i think is that the data is bearing out our story so it's not just people out there complaining the data does show that we've lost progress and that has you know i think triggered a the kind of response we want to see from leadership from the different agencies I mean, we have to we have to build on that. We have got to accomplish the mission now.
1: Yeah, and that kind of feeds into my next question: like, why now? Why now? Is because data is showing that we're stumbling, that we're losing ground instead of gaining ground, and building on the success of the past.
2: Right, that's what the data shows. So that the question is, that, you know, why is that data there? And I would just say it, it's past the time for us to be patient about this issue. I mean, there's an old canard in healthcare that it takes a generation to actually change things. Well, we've had a generation we've had more than 20 years and we have not made progress and in fact there's probably more risk in the system now just because of the increasing complexity of healthcare and the increasing aging of the population more comorbidities to manage more medications to manage all of that stuff creates risk so we can't be patient about this anymore we can't wait for this i said this before i'm going to underscore it you know i think from a patient point of view and a patient safety activist point of view we've lost the belief that the healthcare system can fix itself. It's just not going to. There's too many parts of the healthcare system that are too entrenched and their economic models are making money for them with the status quo. And what we need is that paradigm shift towards systems thinking and you know, transparency. Those things are important. And that's not going to happen without um, some push and some some more accountability. And that's what we're calling for. And then our approach to this from the very beginning has been a, a voluntary approach, a public-private partnership where government funds things, government supports things, and we trust the healthcare system to kind of come along and do the right thing. And, you know, that happens some places, but it doesn't happen across the board. So we need definitely a more systematic approach with a really strong federal leadership and that's where we are now. It's it's past the time to just think that public-private partnership is going to magically work by itself. It needs structure and accountability.
1: And hospital board oversight to make safety and quality a priority too. When you're budgeting for medical malpractice in your strategic plan, that's counterintuitive to making things safe, right? When you're allowing a certain amount of dollars to go to that expense, it's call me a cynic, but you're not you're really not structuring your business plan to for safety and quality. Right.
2: Right. And Tracy, one thing that I, I'm remiss in mentioning that I know you care deeply about, too, and that many Americans care about is just the way we've kicked the disparity issue down the road. I mean, it's equally as troubling as the way we've kicked safety down the road. I mean, we've just had this high tolerance for big disparities in outcomes, depending on different demographic characteristics. And uh, that's got to be part of what we address now, too. It's part and parcel of the safety mission. If we're going to commit to safety, we have to commit to safety for everybody.
1: Right. And now we're seeing the data, too, that really points to, you know, those disparities in, in care and outcomes. So I think what you measure, you can fix. If you don't, we didn't measure that for a long time. And now we have the truth that Of what again? What people were suspect of in the safety realm, they were similarly suspect that there were disparities in the outcomes here.
2: Yeah, and we've had voices of people. We've had studies, just like we have studies in the safety arena, that you know shed light on the problem. But we're not systematically measuring it. The data is terrible. So I have to give um, federal leaders credit for really identifying that problem and saying, you know what, We, we only can measure well if we've got good data. So I think the the kind of conflation in a good way between safety and um, equity is going to be a very exciting part of our next chapter. Here is really looking at at the data and looking at how some people just don't get the kinds of uh, fairness in the healthcare system that they that we all deserve.
1: So, I mean, this is kind of along those lines. Uh, what really surprises you most about what is preventing health systems from making patient safety a priority and, and making health health disparities a priority?
2: You know, I want to say that nothing really surprises me anymore, but Mm -hmm. honestly, if I'm not being cynical, the fact that that cover up is still the norm, that that fear of litigation is such a driver. I mean, maybe it's because I worked on this so many years ago, but that paradigm, that piece of the paradigm shift that we've been talking about for the longest time has not happened. We still have this incredibly adversarial legal system that is Wasteful. I mean, it's just terrifically expensive. It unfairly compensates people, and it just really, really drives behavior. It drives. It uses fear of liability exposure to drive behavior, and that leads to cover up. Again, public-private partnership. It doesn't happen everywhere. You and I see the the leaders who step up and have not only embraced the evidence or, or drank the Kool-Aid, but they're actually generating the data that shows that when you are open and honest, your liability exposure probably goes down. It definitely doesn't go up. It probably goes down. I mean, many organizations are finding that. And it's better for the workforce as well, because it things get resolved much faster. So that's one big surprise to me. You know, when I see something like the Vanderbilt case happen, where there was a clear never event that was covered up at a major healthcare institution in this country, it, it's an indicator. It is a never event that we still have that sort of systemic fear of litigation that is driving so much harm in healthcare. And then I think the other thing is just the societal problems. When we look at organizations that have really invested in trying to improve safety and quality, and this gets to the equity issue too, I mean, it's it's like Sisyphus pushing the boulder uphill. You can have leadership in an organization that's really committed to it, but if you've got poverty and low literacy and You know, other insurance coverage issues, for example, that just interfere with and don't support and aren't aligned with that safety and quality mission. If you have payment that isn't aligned with that safety and quality mission, it's not really that surprising that it's not sustainable. You know, leaders push, but then, you know, the progress falls away because the outside world isn't incentivizing it. It's it's actually dragging on it. And then I think um, the other big thing I have to push, and I know this is near and dear to your heart as well. You and I talk about it often, but it's it's the way in which we just haven't invested in education of our healthcare professionals and our healthcare you know, organizational leaders too, to keep up with the changing times. And we have more and more technology in our healthcare system. We have more and more sophisticated systems, and yet we're not teaching systems theory or safety science in our healthcare professional programs again there's exceptions but for the most part we have an education system that still is resistant to it that doesn't think it's you know it's it's really that relevant and i think that's where we can start the revolution honestly i mean that seems to be a doable thing i mean fixing poverty fixing low literacy That's boiling the ocean, but we can start with really focusing and almost demanding that our educational systems wake up and and become much more embracing of the things that anesthesiology did. Anesthesiology is a shining example here of really putting their, their staff, their physicians, their nurse anesthetists through training about system safety, about the importance of reporting, about bad outcomes being a treasure that you can learn from about not hiding. The sin is not hiding a bad outcome. It's, it's not learning from it. So we've got examples. We can we can build on that. And I think that's where we start with the revolution.
1: Yeah. And when you were talking, I was thinking about the Telluride Patient Safety Summer Camps, now the Academy for Emerging Leaders in Patient Safety that Dave Mayer and T. McDonald started over 15 years ago. Based on the things that you were talking about, educating the young and bringing in the patient stories to, to really teach connecting the heart and the head of what bad outcomes do for providers as well as patients.
2: And bringing in those patient lived experiences as core parts of the curriculum. I mean, that's culture change. And then let's underscore, let's not let this just slide, let's underscore 15 years ago, they started this. And it's it's a demonstrated success there. We we know we changed hearts and minds there, but why has that not been embraced by the, in, in a more comprehensive way by the rest of the education system. I mean, we still fight with people just to get safety, even on the agenda of the undergraduate curriculum. We've made some progress with residency programs, but but not enough.
1: Yeah. And, and that is where my fatigue came in is, you know, we were talking about it takes a generation and we've given a generation to the health system to make care safer. It was being a part of these stories and, and creating this narrative and, and talking with patients and families. At first, it felt groundbreaking and it felt like everybody in the room was moved. And then we kept bringing out same stories, similar stories over the last fifteen plus years. And it was like, okay, well, the house systems aren't changing. We're just continuing to tell these stories in a way that makes everybody feel in the moment. But if the board is still not creating standards for safety and quality at the house system level, it's just checking a box. And it got personal to me because these are, are now our, our longtime friends who've suffered a lot at the hands of the health care system. And don't get me wrong. I think the healthcare system overall is fantastic. I just think that we continue to do, to your point, and not make the progress that we should be making, given the resources and tools at our disposal at this stage of the game.
2: Well, Tracy, I'm going to push back on a couple of things. So the health care system can be Fantastic especially for people who have resources. It's not fantastic for a whole lot of people in this country. And then uh, I'm glad you kind of called out our colleague, Dave Mayer, because, uh, you know, his canard about regulate the old, educate the young, I think uh, is so, such ground truth. And then the other person that just, uh, you know, I was thinking about as you were talking was Tim McDonald and his trope, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that's just really what it is. We have not changed the culture of healthcare. It's still uh, one that is prone to um wanting to look good and and to not be sued and to, you know assure people that the healthcare system is safe when all the evidence is that it's prone to failure because it's so complex. I mean, the human factors people tell us there's nothing more complex than healthcare, no other human activity that's as complicated as this because it's twenty four seven. There's high risk there's constant activity I mean we know people make mistakes when they're um, tired multitasking or distracted and that's like every day almost every moment of every day in healthcare so we need you know systems that really address those human uh frailties that we understand and and support them so anyway that culture is yet to happen and that will be a big part of what we we uh, hopefully achieve in the next chapter of this journey.
1: Yeah. And it's not the onus on the patients and patient advocates to keep the pressure on the system. But if we do take the pedal off the gas, who's really pushing the needle, right? So how can patient advocates influence change on the healthcare system?
2: Well, I think about this in three buckets. So first of all, We can take care of the people we love and just speak up for them. So, you know, just at that micro system level, you know, be an advocate for yourself. You know, make sure you go to your portal and make sure your 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 data there is accurate Report it If it's not, you know, take somebody with you when you go to the doctor. The evidence is really clear that we're all anxious, no matter how sophisticated we are. We're all anxious when we go to the doctor. Take someone there. If you've got somebody in the hospital that you care for and love, don't leave them there. I mean, I would never leave somebody in the hospital overnight that I care for. I would I would move in. I would camp. I would make noise if people say you can't stay. That got harder in COVID. I mean, there were real reasons to keep people up, but we got to come back from that too. Secondly, I mentioned all this lived experience that I got exposed to back in 1999. I mean, that is something we can do. We can tell our stories of healthcare, and we can tell not just the failure stories, but what we learned from them. Or the rescue stories, we can tell those stories and bring those into decision making. You know, we can do that through patient and family advisory councils, other voluntary activities, through reporting things that we see, through um, trying to be part of the, the community of healthcare providers, getting on a board of directors if you can find a pathway to that. But just find a way. I mean, there's a lot of organizations that are now hungry for patient stories because they they realize the value, um, so you can go to several different websites where uh, you can contribute a story about what's happened to your family that you know might make a difference. In fact, we've seen it make a difference in many places. And then thirdly, we can you know we can be advocates in a not just in a internal improvement way, but in that pushy outside way, pushing on the system. And we can write our congressmen and senators, we can write Secretary Becerra and say, "Why is this not a priority anymore? What happened?" We can, you know, go to media, do all those sorts of things that put that outside pressure on the system. And and you're right, it, it shouldn't be our job ethically as patients and family members to be the agents for change. But again, it's been 20 years. We haven't seen it happen. So if we love our children and our spouses and our parents and our siblings and if we want the world to be a better place for the next generations of people, you know, it's it's worthy work to just go out there and give some time to being an activist.
1: This is a little off script, but you mentioned, and rightfully so, the disparities in healthcare and, and that sometimes it's where you show up where you're going to have a better shot at a good outcome. And zip code kind of defines health. We've seen that. How can we better activate the communities that are more at risk, given their zip code, to have their voices heard?
2: I think the the lever there, the pathway I see is really state government, because you think about Medicaid as being um, a, a tool for improvement there. Medicaid is so underfunded in so many places, and that's really the purview of state leadership. So I think we go to our state leaders, our elected state representatives, our elected executives in states, and just say, look at the people in, right, I'll, I'll use our city as an example, in Englewood, a poor neighborhood, deserve the same level of care. Same level of safety as those in the neighborhood that neighborhoods that you and I live in where there are more resources and there are better schools and there is higher literacy I mean all of those things those sort of societal problems that contribute to unsafe care and contribute to inequity, we have to be uh, making noise at the state level, not just the federal level about addressing those issues and improving Medicaid, improving wellness services in challenged neighborhoods, improving awareness about the connection between nutrition or homelessness and the safety of health care are really, really important issues for us to t- bring to our, our state leaders in particular.
1: So, Randy, I, you know, we, we were talking about the cover ups in health care and that that is one of the things that was surprising to you that that continues. Uh, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to transparency in when it relates to patient safety in the U.S. healthcare care system?
2: I think there's, there's two big obstacles, and one is that we still don't count, accurately count and systemically count the number of harms that come from, the preventable harms that come from the healthcare system. So contrast that with COVID. We can get our arms around how many COVID cases there were in this country because we counted them. In the patient safety realm, all of our data is based on estimates from studies. And those studies have been primarily hospital focused. So we might have some decent data about the number of deaths that happen that are preventable because of hospital systems failures and and errors. What about nursing homes? We know there's a lot of harm happens in nursing homes. What about the huge frontier of missed or delayed diagnosis or failure to communicate diagnosis or all those ways in which the diagnosis is just missed over the course of the continuum of care that's not accurately organized? So we don't have any numbers on that, and looking beyond death as an indicator, all of the harm that happens to people who don't die, uh, we're just not accounting for. When you look at the estimates for the cost of of medical error, or the cost of unsafe healthcare, with maybe two exceptions, the studies all focus on the cost to the healthcare system, maybe to employers, but not to patients and families themselves, not to the overall you know social net. When the trauma of a medical error, you know, leads to depression, or leads to lost income, or leads to divorce, or suicide—all of those things—we hear over and over again reports from patients and families. But we're just not counting those costs in this overall equation. And you know, someone's fighting that. I mean, let's just be honest; it's going to be embarrassing data for the people that we've entrusted—who who think who want us to believe that the healthcare system is safe. It's just not. So counting, I think, is the core to it. If we had accurate numbers, you know, I see COVID being positioned as the third largest cause of death in the country in recent years. That's because they counted the deaths in nursing homes. If we counted the deaths in nursing homes from unsafe care, we would be reliably number three, but we just don't. And then the other thing is we, we have yet to establish open and honest communication about error as the standard of care in medicine. There's no case law about that. I mean, there's an ethical mandate to do it, not just on doctors, but on um, healthcare organizational leaders too, that you have to tell the truth. There's a human rights component to it. I mean, we're the owners of our bodies. We're entitled to information about our bodies, but it's still the norm that, you know, it's okay, often based on the advice of your lawyer to disinform or not say anything or end communication. I mean, when is honesty going to be, you know, stop being voluntary and going to become the standard of care. I mean, I think that's, again, something we can accomplish uh, with the right cases, maybe that we file amicus briefs on with the right federal standards requiring something like candor be implemented at organizations. But that fact that it's so ethically clear and yet it's not the legal standard of care is a huge obstacle.
1: You know, I'm so glad you brought up nursing homes and that the conflicting View that we get a COVID deaths because we counted those, and what we don't see in terms of medical harm in, in those environments, ambulatory centers too. I, I remember coming home after seeing visiting my grandma in a nursing home, and she was at the best nursing home in the in the area, and I just recognized what the threats and the risks were, and and part of it has to do with overworked staff, underpaid staff, corporate entities owning these facilities, and not hearing about the oversight, just the real estate, just the getting the Medicare, Medicaid dollars from the bodies and the beds.
2: Yeah. I'm really troubled by that as well, Tracy. It's, you know, that profit motive, you know, you've got to return to your shareholders. So we look at COVID and and so many nursing homes didn't have infection control personnel. Think about it. You've got this residential facility with no infection control professional there. That's just, you know, economic production pressure. And then the other thing that I'd add to your list is the turnover. So not only is the staff, are they not adequately staffed, the staff that is there, because they're paid less than um, providers in other situations, they tend to move more frequently. Uh, They look for a better job that pays better elsewhere. So the turnover in in staff is just a huge, huge issue there.
1: The woman that was caring for my grandma was nine months pregnant. And there were people who I just I thanked them every day I walked in there. I bought them lunch. I just didn't, I wanted them to show up because I recognized that caring for someone 99 years old, incredibly healthy up until the last 18 months of her life, even moving her, even gently moving a 90 year old human and the fragility of the skin and the fragility of the bones is a skill. And you talked about infection. It's constantly, you have, you're constantly caring for people who are incontinent and and it's a, a out of infection. If you don't have infection prevention, and that was pre-COVID, that's, it didn't surprise me at all what happened during COVID. Oh my gosh, you just put me on a soapbox. <laughs> I'll, I'll stop But Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for pointing that out. So, you know, along those lines, what do you think is the most important thing patients should know when they prepare to enter a health system?
2: So the the things that I say to patients are don't assume that the healthcare system is glued together because it it isn't. Um, and leaders know that, but they don't like to talk about it because it could cause some anxiety, but it is not glued together. Um, it is uh, uh, systems people. We talked about the importance of systems education. Systems people say healthcare is prone to failure. There's so many moving parts. There's so much change within it. There's shift changes. It's 24-7 operation. There's teamwork challenges that, you know, things fall between the cracks and often in ways that we can't always predict. So we've got to be resilient. So just go in as part of that team, you know, expect things to go wrong. Don't expect things to go right. You'll be a better person. You know, hopefully you'll be lucky, but don't count on it. Just go in with that attitude that you're going to be, you know, that there's risk here to manage. And the second thing I would say, this is just an attitude I cop whenever I go into healthcare. And that is, this is a system that's supposed to work for me. And if it doesn't work for me, I'm entitled to speak up and say something about it. I'm entitled to say to a nurse or a doctor or a risk manager or a CEO, this system isn't working for me. And, you know, I'm not going to leave when visiting hours are over. I'm going to stay here with my mom. (laughs) I'm going to sleep in that chair right there in that room because this is my healthcare system. It belongs to me. So I just psychologically assume that attitude when I go into the system that you work around me, I'm not going to work around you. Um, I know it's a little bit self-centered, but, you know, my job there is to protect the one I love. And I would recommend that as an attitude that everyone should take as they go into the healthcare system, make it work for you. It's supposed to.
1: And it's all in how you, how you approach it, too. I mean, we, we know, you know, and you have a charm that I'm sure when you deliver those messages that, you know, people listen. It is using your words very carefully. Words have power. So if you want to get something done your way in a busy healthcare system, you got to be able to kind of navigate (laughs) the anger and the frustration and your, you know, check your state too, I think is, is will help get the outcome you want.
2: And if you're lucky enough to have a functional family or, or siblings or other people that are in it with you, you can, you could divide up the roles. You could be, you could do a little good cop, bad cop. So in my family, I'm always the one to fire a doctor and just say, you know, you're not the right doctor for us. Thank you very much. And then my siblings or my in-laws will come in and say, you know, he's really a nice guy. You know, he's, (laughs) they just kind of do a little cleanup after me. That's kind of the game we played uh, when we were uh, in our parents' end of life journeys because it worked. And then, you know, you get to identify also the people who are kind of Welcoming of your interference versus those that are resistant to it. And you kind of play to those people. You identify the nurses that, you know, are empathetic and go, yeah, I I understand where they're coming from when they're upset.
1: There's always one nurse for sure that gets it and that has been also on the sharp end of that dismissal or the dysfunction in the healthcare system and is willing to advocate for her patient or his patient.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, another really practical point is pay attention to shift change. So uh, information falls away during shift change, especially now when so much of the shift changes is guided by the EHR. So it used to be nurses would brief one another. They could share their hunches. They could share their worries or their, their basic intuitive concerns. Now they plug it into a computer and someone comes in and reads the computer and that human conversation is much less prevalent than it was a few years ago. So you see, you know, one nurse at the end of his or her shift, um, inputting, and the next one, you know, looking at what was written. But you you miss that. Mm, je ne sais quoi. I don't know what's going on here. But this, keep an eye on this one because I'm a little worried about that.
1: The interpretation of notes too. No matter how they're written down, it's always nice to be part of that. Huddle or part of the, like you said, the, the shift change to be able to say, No, nice, I didn't say exactly that. This is really what i feeling to be included in the conversation for sure. You know, when people get involved, you know, if they hear this and they want to take action, what should they do?
2: Well, one of the things I'm going to pitch is the organization that I helped co found here back in 2021. And it's called Patients for Patient Safety US. We're the US branch of WHO, World Health Organization's network of patient safety advocates we're patient led but anyone can can join us the barriers to entry are very low you've got to go through a, an hour of orientation and then just make a commitment to do something you know with us it can be we have a big menu we're we're guided by WHO's global patient safety action plan which is just a wonderful document that was published in 2021 that really just lays out the strategies that every country has to put into place if they're really going to learn from our last 20 years and and make a difference in the next 20. So check us out at pfps.us. So pfps, Patients for Patient Safety, that Us. join us if you like. You can join us as an individual and become what WHO calls a patient safety champion, or you can join us as an organization if you wanna be sort of an affiliated partner. And all of the big government agencies that touch out are are affiliated partners now, along with many private sector organizations and nonprofits. And we're going to do a march in Washington. Uh, we do one every year on World Patient Safety Day, September seventeenth. So if you, you know, when that date comes around in your calendar, you can uh, join us there. You can also get involved in our committees. Uh, we're writing our congresspeople. We're we're making some noise. And then I, you know, as I mentioned, take care of the people you love. I mean, just um, it starts locally, <laughs> and don't be afraid to you know speak up uh, and offer your experience to your own healthcare organization, you know, as a, as a person who wants to help that their hospital or their nursing home or their inventory care center be the best place it can be and the safest place it can be by, you know, by helping it make better decisions. So there's a number of ways, but check out PFPS US.
1: Okay, great. We'll include that in, in the notes. And, you know, I, I, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, we've touched on a little bit of what you've done and the you've touched, but I think... We need need a lot more people like you out there.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that nice compliment.